there's always this connection or at least an emphasis on a great restaurant or a great brewery or something you know similar like food and beverage yeah and, and i've and i see this across the country in different asset types but i'm, I'm curious what you think the connection is to f and b to a neighborhood or to a sense of place i think um those types of spaces restaurants breweries coffee shops you know they're like the last sacred ground of sort of the antithesis of social media so you really um you really can't get that experience anywhere else from our perspective and um, people need that you know connection it feels like now more than ever On this episode, I'm speaking with Howard Pastor and Mike Sturdivant of Pastor Properties, now a third generation real estate company based in the Twin Cities. Howard joined Pastor in 2000 and worked alongside his father, Edward, until his passing in 2012. Today, Howard continues Pastor's legacy of combining local knowledge, regional insight, local relationships, and a broader national perspective. As VP of development, Mike focuses on sourcing and completing development, redevelopment, leasing, and acquisition projects for Pastor. He's been instrumental in forming new joint venture partnerships and expansion into multifamily development, and played a key role in Pastor's Texatonka projects. This is a really fun conversation with a few friends, and I'm excited to hear the story of Pastor, which extends all the way back to before World War II. Let's jump right in. Great, Howard and Mike, thanks for joining me on uh, Transforming Cities, really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris, good to be here. You bet, thanks for having us. Excited. I love a good uh, three-person conversation here. We don't do it too often on Transforming Cities, so um, it's gonna be fun to hear from both of you guys about the the backstory of, of pasture properties and what you're up to today. But um, if you've listened to Transforming Cities before, then you know that I like to start with backstory. I think it's important for context, and so, um, let's kind of do uh, Howard first, Mike second. Howard, tell me a little bit about where you grew up, what the upbringing was like, and uh, Howard as a youngster. Can you paint us that picture? I can paint you that picture, yes. Um, well, I mean, I'm 54 years old for a little bit longer, so I did grow up in the 70s, which was a fantastic period in America, growing up in the Midwest. I heard it's only only the second fantastic to the eighties. So that's, that's good to know. Mm. I do good, up in the good music too. in the seventies. You know, my good music, music is more tasted, more uh, <laughs> yeah. influenced by the eighties. <laughs> you know, I would say I grew up in a, you know, pretty typical suburban Midwest home. Um, coming from a, a, a Jewish family in the upper Midwest. Um, played sports growing up. Um, I had, um, I have a little sister. I guess she's still little, but she's now grown up, but uh, growing up, two of us, a lot of humor in my household. Um, I would say that the family business kind of pervaded really every aspect of our life. Um, and, you know, my, my dad was this typical like entrepreneur uh, that probably could never turn it off um, time. People probably you know, define that as a workaholic, but mm. it was just ever, ever present kind of, um, in the conversation, um, at home and at the dinner table and on vacation. Um, and we would, you know, either be out looking at buildings, uh, on vacation, uh, my dad and I, or 
we would be meeting various, you know, business uh, associates of his, either at the dinner table or on vacation, you know, meeting people in some sort of like social settings. So, mm. um, and I would say, you know, my, my quality time <clears throat> with my dad growing up would be more, you know, fitting into his schedule, right? It was very different than the way the world works today where we conform everything to the kid's schedule, like we conform to his schedule, right? So if I wanted to spend time with him, it would be like going to do errands with him or, you know, driving around uh, shopping centers on vacation and going through the alleys of shopping centers on vacation in Florida, you know, yeah, yeah, good a memories bit like that. A little bit different these days. I, I think we were joking when we talked last that, you know, it'd be like having all of our business associates over for dinner nowadays it feels sort of weird a little bit but i think yeah. um, maybe more common practice in the the 70s and 80s as for compared sure. to the, the 2020s sure. it was fun. mike mike tell me about, about tell me about your background are you um were you also driving around um to <laughs> <laughs> to uh uh alleyways and loading docks of of shopping centers growing up uh yeah not 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 so much uh so ingrained in the real estate like howard is a as a youngster, um, uh, Howard threw out his age. So I'll throw out mine, 36, grew up in the Midwest, um, had a great upbringing, really fortunate to have uh, two great parents uh, and four siblings. So kind of a, a larger family. Um, like I said, one of five kids. Uh, we have a large extended family that's really close. Um, and so, you know, really big get togethers, uh, times at the cabin, uh, hockey and lacrosse. My dad ran a small dry cleaner. So there was always an element of kind of hard work uh, instilled at me at a young age. I remember, uh, you know, as early as I can remember being at the dry cleaner, you know, helping to just sweep floors, do whatever I could to kind of be helpful. Um, you know, many mornings watching my dad up and out the door, you know, you know, 530 in the morning and not back until six mm. o'clock and mom was stay at home. So, you know, she had probably the biggest job in the household. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, really, really fortunate upbringing. How did, um, how did, I know we're going to get a little bit more into this, but how did real estate, you know, whereas, whereas real estate was really ingrained in Howard's upbringing, how did real estate find its way into your life? Was there anything in particular? Yeah. Yeah. So I had, you know, some exposure to real estate. Um, you know, one of my kind of mentors in the business is my uncle Tim, uh, and Tim, uh, is kind of a rock star developer in the twin cities, uh, and runs today a large development firm. And so, uh, he kind of turned my ear to real estate, uh, in about 2011 at the time I was in school, uh, in management in the restaurant business. And he suggested, you know, that I consider getting my real estate license. And that was kind of the, um, you know, kind of the spark in interest in real estate. And then just kind of went from there. Mm. Really interesting. I, and I want to, we're going to definitely come back to more of that. Um, I want to dive into right away this uh this story of of pastor properties you know it's a third generation real estate company and i think the origin story and sort of the over the years story is um, really fascinating um it's not something that you can scribble in the back of a of a of a paper napkin and have the whole story so 
I wanted to make sure we had enough time to dive into that today because I think it's, uh, like I said, it's really interesting, but there's so many uh, phases, if you will, to it. It didn't start with what you're doing today um, with the team at Pastor. And so, Howard, maybe you could kind of walk us through the, the different iterations uh, because it started um, just after World War II. And so we're, we're taking a trip down memory lane, but maybe you could set the scene for us and kind of walk us through those, those different time periods. Yeah, I was, so I would say actually the, the entrepreneurial part of the business started before World War II. Um, my grandfather was a first generation uh, immigrant kind of from outside of uh, Odessa uh, in um, uh, off the Black Sea in kind of Russia, Ukraine uh, area. And uh, he immigrated in 1920 with his mother and his four or five siblings. Mm. Um, his dad and some of his siblings actually had come earlier in World War I broke out. So they were stuck uh, as... Um, as uh, as the war broke out, anyway, he uh, he was a very entrepreneurial guy, probably from a young age. Spoke a lot of different languages uh, as a result of you know kind of being in that part of the world. Um, and I think that you know he uh, always had this you know kind of moxie and um, personality. Um, he was a salesperson at heart and. Uh, Prior to kind of the real estate business, he was in the coin machine distribution uh, business, which means that they, you know, in the call it 30s and 40s, would be the representative for companies like Bally slot machines, pinball machines, and uh, Wurlitzer jukeboxes. And they essentially had these routes that they owned, um, mm. and they were the sole. Uh, like distributor, they would go and basically sell these machines to bars and restaurants. Um, and then they would buy it from Bally um, and, you know, lease it to uh, lease it to these bars and restaurants. And so they kind of started with this distribution business. Then they built the finance business around that where they were kind of buying and financing the, the, the machines. Um, and uh, it was, during that business that he met uh, my great uncle um, or great, great uncle, um, really his wife, my grandmother's um, uncle. Um, and they ended up uh, kind of going into business in this coin machine distribution business. It was first called Mayflower Distribution. And then eventually my grandfather bought him out after World War II and kind of renamed it Pastor Distribution. Um, what ended up happening is that, uh, I think it was either right before World War II or after it, my uh, uncle Sam basically took that, that business with Bailey and Wurlitzer and moved to Miami and started kind of developing the business there. My grandfather kind of stayed here and, uh, at the end of World War II, they started developing single family homes. Uh, in St. Paul in the Highland Park neighborhood with uh, some other relatives. And uh, they were basically building these neighborhoods um, in St. Paul, these kind of starter homes for all these GIs that were moving back. And eventually that turned into a uh, commercial 
real estate business where they realized that these neighborhoods didn't really kind of have uh, the goods and services that um, that would be required. And I think retail is probably changing quite a bit um, yeah. post-World War II. And so they, they started developing these shopping centers um, and they were really involved in some of the first grocery anchored shopping centers here in the Twin Cities. Uh, and they ended up having a relationship with one of the grocery stores, um, grocery chains in town that was owned by a Jewish family with a lot of brothers. And my grandfather was really close with them. Uh, in fact, at one point, their office was literally in the same building as ours on University Avenue in St. Paul. And so that really spawned the um, what was called um, uh, Pastor Enterprises at the time. Uh, and the focus on kind of these neighborhood grocery anchored shopping centers. That's um, that's really fascinating because the way the story is going to trend now, moving forward in some of the work that you're involved in today and have been involved with over the last decade or so, um, originated in the 40s and 50s. That's really fascinating that this family business um, seized an opportunity and then kind of realized we need more community with grocery anchored uh, shopping centers and so forth. And all that came from pinball uh, pinball machines and, and so forth, which is just, I smile at that because it's such a unique story. You don't hear that every day. So, um, but not to interrupt. You go, you go with where the sale, when, when you're a salesperson <laughs> yeah, right. at heart, right? Right, right. you find you know, the sale. You look where, where is that gap? Yeah, you know, what, what, need, what needs not being solved in the world? And how can I be a part of that? So there were, there were a couple more phases really before you stepped in or maybe one other, um, I guess, large phase into the, the 60s and 70s. But I think your grandfather passed away in the early 60s. Um, yeah, what, what so was taking place then? There, so as, as this business was kind of growing and my grandfather was right, this uh, successful entrepreneur and, um, you know, kind of developing stuff at the forefront of the, the development of the suburbs. Um, he ended up passing away in uh, the early 60s. And my dad was in college. I think my dad and his older brother were in college. Um, and there were some uncles in the business. Um, and they basically came into the family business. Um, and... Uh, they, they did not do a great job with kind of like contingency planning or estate planning. And they were in a, they were in a really tough spot where they were, you know, moving things around trying to avoid bankruptcy and kind of working with the banks and other creditors and, um, and the government on the estate taxes and kind of bootstrapped it and mm. um went through probably a lot of right trauma just to kind of keep the thing afloat, which they did. Um, and, um, and then my dad and my, uh, uncle or were really, that was the next, that was the second generation. They were in the business and they kind of maintained what they had. They started to do probably a little bit of development, a little bit of acquisition. Um, but I would say that that experience for sure colored, their risk tolerance and they were not as, um, they were a lot more risk averse than my grandfather mm. was, right? My grandfather kind of coming from nothing, probably no big deal for him to risk everything on, on each deal. Um, second generation, not so much. 
Um, anyway, that that that's kind of the story uh, for a couple of decades, and then I moved back in March of 2000 to work with my dad. At that point, he had bought his older brother out of the business, and it was just my dad that was in the business. And uh, I was living in Chicago. I had been working with a company called MidAmerica Real Estate. They were involved in third-party leasing, management, brokerage in the Chicagoland area. Uh, at the time, that was their only office. Now they have several offices around the Midwest. And uh, great experience for me. Um, I was there for about eight years. And I realized kind of early on that it would be really challenging to go and work in the family business right away mm. and work with my father, who had this larger-than-life personality. Uh, and it would not have been healthy for me, our relationship, Maybe not healthy for him, but I uh, knew that I would have just gotten like squashed. So I had to kind of <laughs> run away a little bit and so you, uh, develop you, my own. You two set. didn't have you two didn't have the same larger than life personalities, is what you're is what you're saying here. I mean, I don't think that I do. Maybe some people now think that I do. I mean, we're we're all fighting genetics, <laughs> right? Exactly. As exactly. We get, <laughs> yeah. As we get older, but. You know, at the time, he was just this huge, magnanimous personality. And, uh, you know, when he walked into a room, like, people knew. And, uh, uh, you know, when you're the son of someone like that, it's like, okay, I got to. <laughs> yeah. I'm just always going to be, you know, Eddie's son. I got to I gotta go and figure some stuff out on my own. So, um, I went to Chicago. Uh, and... Um, Ended up landing a job with uh, with uh, Mid America, and I worked in property management for a couple of years, which was kind of a great building block to kind of understand the shopping center business. Eventually, I moved into uh, more of a leasing role where uh, I was leasing properties for um, either banks, insurance companies, some individual right developers, pension funds, um, all. I would say mainly more institutional type owners, but some entrepreneurial owners and kind of learned the process of, um, um, of both the management and leasing side of the business and, and, and also, you know, somewhat the right, the reporting mechanism and how to, how to track uh, the important metrics, stuff that probably a entrepreneurial um, jack of all trades, uh, real estate company, you know, discipline that they uh, typically don't have. Mm. Um, and after a number of years, I guess my dad convinced me to come back and work with him. And um, to, uh, that happened in 2000. And I think the thought was, is that I was going to come back and really help stabilize the existing portfolio in some way, shape or form and really start to focus in on development and kind of growing um, growing the company. Um, and I think over the years, because we were not that like a super active developer, um, uh, a lot of our assets were, you know, probably prime for some sort of right redevelopment or retenanting right type strategy. Mm. Um, and some of them maybe just had passed, uh, their useful life, um, as the population, you know, kind of grew from, you know, the 60s where there was one suburb to the 
80s when there was three or four suburbs um, and better locations and more regional locations had kind of been developed and probably to the detriment of a lot of the assets that we owned at the time. Um, let's let's pause there because I want to I want to ask you, Mike. This is around the time when you ended up crossing paths with Howard in the Pastor organization. Um, how about you catch us up to speed with your backstory um, in terms of cutting your teeth and what you were working on um, as you ended ended up ultimately joining the the Pastor team. Yeah. Yeah. So I joined, uh, joined up with Howard probably two years into my commercial real estate career. So I was fortunate enough in 2008 to land a, a full-time internship with a developer in town that had a, a really heavy retail grocery anchored background uh, in the Twin Cities um, and started in a leasing role and in a really tough market. So we were still coming out of the GFC retail had been very overbuilt. And so, um, you know, it would probably take 50 to hundred cold calls to get a showing at that time. Um, and so really kind of learned the business from that market. Um, and then went to another larger developer in town. Uh, like I said before, linking up with Howard. And so, yeah, when I got to pastor it, it uh, you know, meeting with Howard could just tell that Howard wanted to kind of take the company into the next generation. And so I was fortunate to come in at kind of the foothills of that transition. And so it's been, it's been a fun ride. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities, brought to you by Authentic, delivering premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Authentic's proven approach accelerates leasing velocity, boosts rental rates, and increases long-term value. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. And by Charles Gate, the multifamily investor's secret weapon to help underwrite, go to market, and operate projects that generate market-beating returns. With an adaptive staffing model and on-demand leasing teams, Charles Gate empowers a better resident experience at an efficient cost structure for today's owners visit charlesgate.com for more. And let's talk about that transition. So um, we've, we've heard the story now of, of where Pastor came from, the origin story, more or less. And I'm, I'm curious if it's, in terms of Pastor today, is it difficult to position the company as something new or trans- transition it into something else when it was you know rooted in potentially very different things over the decades, right? It didn't start with where you are today. Is that a difficult challenge to shift? Um, and maybe Howard, you could start us off on this one. Is that a difficult challenge for you? Was that a, a tricky piece of terrain for you to navigate? Or what was that like for you in the, call it uh, 2010s? Well, so I would say I joined the company in 2000. Um, my dad was still around. My dad was active. Um, and he started to kind of become less active. Um, my, my dad at the end ended up having um, Parkinson's, um, whether it was technically diagnosed or not, um, I guess kind of irrelevant, but he just became less active in the business. And at a certain point, it just was clear that he didn't have the same energy um, and attention to detail he did previously um, as uh, Parkinson's does to people. 
Uh, and so I think oftentimes like in family businesses, entrepreneurial family businesses, there's not like this formal transition with, you know, um, confetti and a trumpet and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. You just end up starting to do more and more stuff that you weren't doing. Um, that's really kind of what happened um, for me when I kind of mm -hmm. came in. Mm -hmm. And I was always trying to like push. I was trying to push to um, improve the team, bring on more talent. Uh, from my dad's perspective, it was trying to spend more money. Um, he would say, look, anyone can spend money. Show me how you're going to make money. <laughs> right. Um, so I say that anecdote to kind of uh, more um, <laughs> kind of communicate this, this challenge, this typical challenge uh, between family members, particularly a father and a son, second generation, third generation, where there's this, right, this push-pull where the younger generation probably wants to take more risks. The second generation is kind of risk-averse, and uh, it's, it becomes a battle. And, you know, we got, we got things done not as fast as I would have liked. And uh, then we started to, we did start to do some new, interesting, challenging things. My dad passed away in 2012. Um, and um, I would say a lot of our transition into, call it mixed use type properties and certainly going into multifamily ground up development uh, those happened after my dad's passing, um, and I would say just natural in a family business where that um, that freedom uh, that sometimes happens for a leader when the previous generation doesn't have as much um, right control. Clearly, uh, when one passes, that uh, uh, right that happens. Um, but I think we we have stuck with our ethos of really neighborhood retail and um, using retail as that kind of um, secret sauce or differentiation in the market. Um, and certainly, right, stuck with the the principles and the values that, you know, were handed down from my, uh, my father on, right, being prudent and uh, fiscally disciplined and you know, those types of things and right, the importance of relationships. Um, right, we've ne never really gotten away from those, mm -hmm. but definitely, it definitely was a change. And I think that the market um, certainly viewed us maybe as less active. Um, I don't know, maybe sleepy. Uh, and for us to kind of transform and be like, okay, we're going to be a lot more transactional. We're going to start to do some development. We're going to start to do some different things. Um, and start to get into product types that we were not involved in before. That that for sure was different, and it took some some uh, transition, and um, we had to we had to make sure that we were um, being prudent and yet uh, also not having it stop us from um, you know trying new things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what we're talking about right now really is the change in, uh, call it shopping styles or patterns of most of us, you know, we're not going out to the shopping centers every weekend to the mall and so forth to buy our, our wares. We're relying a lot more on 
on the internet and Amazon and so forth. And so, um, you know, this seems like a time period for pastor where you were having to reevaluate this idea of the shopping center and, and what these, what this tenant mix was looking like in these shopping centers. And so, um, let's talk about that transition from how did you, how do you sort of evaluate that and then transition into this phase where you're thinking of new development and you're thinking of what is a successful tenant mix? Because I think Mike, you were certainly brought in and had a big hand in starting to transition pastor and helping Howard and the team do that. Um, however, you, however you want to unpack that, I'm just kind of curious how that transition took place and, and then kind of thinking more of the, the projects you're working on today, how you're going about those. Well, I'll set the stage and I'll let Mike kind of, yeah, you know, take it from there. But I think that, I think what happened is, <clears throat> you know, is we, we owned a, a lot of these called suburban assets and that were, you know, B-ish type locations. Um, and particularly the ones where, uh, like our Crystal Shopping Center, you know, we had this 200,000 square foot center with a bunch of, you know, junior box anchors and, you know, call it five to 10,000 square foot um, you know, regional or, or national type tenants, a uh, fair amount of apparel. Uh, and as you started to kind of take a look at like the different tenants that existed and the categories that they represented, um, particularly kind of in the that junior box category, you realize that there was less and less of those um, retailers and mm -hmm. where there used to be, right, call it three to four, there was now only one. And so as we looked at that holistically, we were like, okay, it's going to be really tough for us to play um, in that environment. What we need to do is kind of take those assets, try and fix them up as best as we can and, um, you know, sell them and invest in better locations, right? Let's, let's, let's invest kind of up the curve. And I think for us, that meant we were going to be investing in more dense urban neighborhoods, first ring suburban neighborhoods where there was good density, ended up um, meaning that we were investing in smaller assets, um, but better quality, better locations with the thought process that, you know, like we don't know where retail is necessarily going. Like we're not smart enough to prognosticate five, 10 years out what retail is going to look like. Mm we have enough experience to know what good locations are. And as the world changes, we always know that that's going to be right. A good location with good foot traffic, with good vehicular traffic, with, you know, with other good kind of co-tenants around. Um, and if it means that we're buying an asset with retail on the first floor and some office on the second floor, how do we learn about this small office and kind of get comfortable with it? Um, Ultimately, I think that that's kind of how we got into this foray with the, right, with the multifamily, uh, which was uh, the first project that we did uh, with multifamily was our uh, 1700 uh, project across from Ridgedale and Minnetonka and uh, bought this asset because we thought it was good real estate. It was the Highland Bank building. It was mm. Highland Bank on the first floor and two floors of like class B, C offices um, ultimately we knew it was a great retail location. Um, but it needed to be more than just retail for us to kind of justify the expense of right, tearing that building down and doing something different. Uh, and it was through that kind of learning and investigation with our friends at Bader development that we 
started to learn and understand that it was a really good residential location. And that kind of kicked off us looking at a mixed use project there, which we ultimately got done. Um, we liked that. We kind of liked that development. And I would say that, you know, Mike was, Mike had recently kind of joined us and uh, he was eager to kind of get involved on the development side. And uh, he really kind of took that experience and started to really grow the types of opportunities that we were looking at that were more than just retail. Yeah, Mike, I'm, I'm curious from a, a tenant mix perspective, we've, we've talked a lot about this off offline, not on our podcast here, but um, what are you thinking about? What are you looking for? What opportunities are, um, you know, sort of relevant to the work that you're doing today and feel free to reference a specific project if you want, or um, experiences that you've had in the past. But I think for those listening who are in this work, in this field, doing this work, you know, I think hearing from another uh, in the industry is is always insightful. So I'm curious what your take is. Sure. Um, well, for us and, and probably any uh, real estate project, um, you know, local expertise, really important. You know, we pride ourselves on being local, staying local, and really trying to understand in each neighborhood what is the customer missing, whether that's a uh, commercial retail opportunity void that we think can be filled in some way, shape, or form, or and or a multifamily opportunity kind of in and around the retail. So, like if we think about our St. Louis Park project, our Texatonka projects. Um, you know, it really started with, you know, does the existing center match up with the surrounding neighborhood? And I think as we studied that, the answer was no, it, it didn't match up. The neighborhood had changed. And so, um, and from a tenant mix perspective, um, like I said, you're, you're trying to get smart on what does the customer need and try and match that with, you know, the retailer um, or operator going into the space. So. Mm. That's kind of where we like to start. And then the tenant mix, you know, starts to starts to form from there. You always mention that the main thing that you're focusing on is bringing value to the locals and the neighborhood. And I, what I've observed is that there's always this connection or at least an emphasis on a great restaurant or a great brewery or something, you know, similar like food and beverage. Yeah. And, and I've, and I see this across the country in different asset types, but I'm, I'm curious what you think the connection is to F and B to a neighborhood or to a sense of place. How would you think about that? Or how would you, how does that tie into your work? Well, I, and I think Howard hit on it a little bit earlier. Some of that's just been, you know, a natural attrition in the number of retail categories that we're interested in, in call, we'll call it neighborhood retail. Um, and certainly over, you know, my career have just seen that rent roll shift more and more um, as a percentage of total kind of food and beverage users. I think um, those types of spaces, restaurants, breweries, coffee shops, you know, they're like the last sacred ground of sort of the antithesis of social media. So you really, um, you really can't get that experience anywhere else from our perspective and um, people need that, you know, connection. It feels like now more than ever. And so, um, like I said, some of that's been natural evolution of retail. Um, some of that's been intentful on our side, trying to get 
a tenant mix right. But I think at the end of the day, it does go back towards, you know, what is the resident wanting in, the, in their neighborhood and trying to match yeah. up with that. Both of you have talked about being, as humans, we're social creatures, whether or not we choose to be social is, a, is a, probably a separate discussion. But this idea that we're drawing energy and inspiration from others is, I think, spot on. And it, it seems to tie in really well with the work that you're doing today and the opportunities that you're looking at today. And, you know, I, I know from my own experiences with, with your team and just from reading it in some of your materials, that sense of community and health and, and purpose and, and sort of this anti-isolation theme is, is really important for, for, for you all and the work that you're doing. How do you approach, this is kind of a big question here, but how do you approach that as at the end of the day, call yourselves retail developers, but I, I, it's so much more than that. And I, I'm curious how that is now playing into decisions you're making yesterday, today, and, and moving forward. I, I would say we're neighborhood developers, yeah. really. Um, it's, not, it's not retail. We started out as retail, but I think as we've evolved, it's, you know, it's this commitment to the neighborhood. Um, neighborhoods, quite honestly, that um, either our existing assets where we're relooking at those and trying to figure out like, okay, does that still work? How do we, how do we uh, maybe redevelop this in a way that is more relevant today with where the world is and kind of what, what these, um, what these neighborhoods want. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've been a part of the neighborhood for several decades, right. For, um, uh, for a number of our assets. And I think for some of our newer assets, we actually are, we actually live in those neighborhoods, right? So while we might not have owned those assets for more than a handful of years, we actually live, um, you know, breathe and interact in those neighborhoods all the time. So I think it's that hyper-local perspective that Mike mentioned where um, if you're looking at it from that perspective and looking at it from a perspective that it's something that, um, you're going to own and be a part of for the long term. It really does change your perspective. Um, and I think you you mentioned it, Chris. I mean, think what we've kind of figured out is, okay, the existential question of like, how do you make the world a better place? Um, I mean, ironically, in some small ways, right, a neighborhood shopping center, multifamily developer, if we can create awesome you know, projects, particularly that have some sort of public or communal space where there's a reason for people to get out of their apartments, to get out of their homes, to get off the couch and be around other people. That's like, that's amazing for, right, everyone's mental health and sense of belonging. Um, I think you're right, getting them to actually then interact and meet their neighbors and um, engage, that's a maybe a separate discussion. <laughs> right. You know, I think uh, for now, right, the thought is how do we create some of these, right, better, interesting um, spaces and places? And if we can, right, tie it into nature, mm. uh, tie it into like a great landscaping and, and greenery in a natural environment. Are there walking or biking paths that somehow we can, you know, connect into and, and leverage some of these community assets that already exist? Um, that's, that's kind of where I think our focus has shifted. Um, and 
sometimes when you do that, you create maybe something that's a little bit different. Uh, and ultimately that means that we can maybe convince, you know, great coffee shop or restaurant tour or, you know, funky retailer or, um, you know, other, um, fitness type, you know, unique user to kind of go into our projects. And we think that that ends up making the neighborhood better. Well, as, as we begin to wrap up that dovetails really nicely into where I'd like to end the discussion today. And it has to do with the challenges that lie ahead. You'd sort of started to touch on this Howard with regards to programming and how do you activate these spaces and actually get the people there and, and sort of enjoying that community and, and or I guess I should say participating in that community. Mike, let's start with you. Uh, and then Howard will kind of kind of wrap up. Um, for you, Mike, as you're looking at existing projects, properties, and, and anything moving forward, what's on your mind as the sort of challenge or the thing that you need to solve in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I'll take it back to each project and how unique, you know, every, every project's so different. And so, yes, there's elements of things that we know have worked well in, um, in one vein, and we do try and bring those and infuse them into future projects. But really, you have to get pretty micro on each project. And um, I think that is, that's both, uh, you know, a good thing and a challenge. It's not commoditized. Uh, and so you got to really figure out well, why, you know, why would this uh, redevelopment, you know, work here um, in trying to get really smart about testing that thesis and, and making mm. sure that you're, you know, tying into the uniqueness of that area and that project. So, um, yeah. Howard, what about you? What's on your mind? I mean, I think Mike hit the nail on the head and right. Ultimately that means that if you understand all those nuances and what makes that particular location work for that particular neighborhood, you're going to find the right group, whether it's a restaurant, coffee shop, bar and grill, you know, interesting, right. Fitness user, um, you're going to find that right tenant that's going to fit for that neighborhood. And our job, <clears throat> our job is to be able to, cr to, to create the environment where that tenant can succeed and, and do the maximum right amount of business right that they can. Mm -hmm. That's good for the entire right ecosystem. And that means that um, it's what those right those neighbors want. Um, and it's right creating that, creating more of that stream of traffic um, and flow, right, of pedestrians. Um, and it enlivens areas, right? And if you can enliven these areas and make them more active, we do really believe that that makes neighborhoods healthier. And, uh, right, it, it's almost cyclical, right? It's, uh, exactly. Actually, it is yeah. very cyclical, right? Everything yeah. that we're, we're doing is like the sense of community um, right, this this downtown area that every city used to have, we're trying to kind of um, rediscover that um, because that is what makes communities right healthy, and it makes people feel like they're um, you know they're included and that they mean something, and that their particular neighborhood is the right unique and. Um, we're, we're always trying to kind of take that uh, 
right? Take that approach. And um, I mean, I think even even some of the things that we're talking about right now uh, at more of the traditional neighborhood uh, suburban shopping centers, it's like, okay, how do you bring in these different events? How do you program these events? You know, if I go back 30, 40 years ago, right, we used to have these, uh, you know, kids, cops, firefighters, kind of like low-level entertainment type events to try and right bring people in. And as cheesy as that sounded at the time in some way, shape, or form, we're trying to like recreate yeah. that because whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's going to figure it out. If the people are there connecting with each other, that's, that's I think, yeah. where the magic is. And that's, uh, that's what we're yearning yeah. for. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think the, the term cyclical is uh, very appropriate for the discussion because it's as if, as a society, we've, we've moved to the suburbs, to single-family homes that have a big footprint. And uh, then there came a loneliness epidemic. Now it's like, wait a second, what have we done? Oh my gosh. And then there's groups like yours that are thinking about how do we actually start to bring people back together and, and give the option and the opportunity to connect with, with local community and neighbors and get the kids back together. And I, I think that's uh, very appropriate. Cyclical is uh, hits the nail on the head. I want to wrap up with a rapid fire question that I always think is fun just to get inside the head of Howard and Mike in this case. And um, it always comes back to the book and it could be a book that you're reading right now that you've just recently wrapped up or maybe like an all time fave, but uh, Howard, let's start with you. One book that you would recommend and why to the listeners. I'm reading a book right now called San Francisco by Michael Schellenberger, I think. Um, and uh, it's actually a deep dive into the um, homeless crisis that we have um, throughout the nation. And uh, he's, he kind of dives into why we are experiencing um, that more so today than we have over the last several decades. Um, pretty eye-opening. Um, and ultimately, some really interesting, like, um, creative solutions on how we um, can can solve kind of that mental health mm. um, and addiction crisis that really is fueling a lot of this this homelessness and um, not necessarily totally related to what we do, but it, but but certainly something that is an epidemic and, and and really important for every community across the country. And so, I would recommend. Okay, noted. Mike, how about you? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, would love to do more reading than I'm actually doing today. I'll chalk that up to my two young <laughs> children that keep my wife and I on our toes uh, at reading time. But um, it's a book called Extreme Ownership by uh, Jocko Willink, who's a, become a well-known veteran Navy SEAL. And um, just a, a really good book on, you know, leadership, um, which I think leadership in general is just an interesting um, theme and, you know, feels like society needs, you know, we, we, we need stronger leadership kind of all around. It feels like these days. So, um, yeah, great book. great book. We will be sure to link both of these in the show notes for today's episode. So if you're curious to grab a copy, feel free, uh, links will be in the notes guys. It's been great to chat with you and hear the, the sort of windy twisty 
history of, of pasture properties and um, really exciting to see what you're up to today and what you're focusing on today and, and looking forward. There's only one more thing to do here and that is to roll out the uh, digital red carpet for you both. Um, tell the world what you're up to and where they could find out more online and maybe get in touch with you guys. Yeah, I guess that's me. Uh, well, thank you, Chris. It's been, it's been a blast. Um, what are we up to right now? I'd say, you know, two projects I would bring to, uh, to the world's attention. We have a redevelopment of some street front retail in St. Paul at Snelling and Selby right across from uh, Whole Foods. Uh, and looking for some interesting food and beverage uh, in unique um, retailers in a, in a great location. Um, I'll let Mike talk about maybe our Mendota Plaza sure. development. Um, you can find us online at pastorprop.com. Uh, our Instagram handle is uh, Pastor Properties. It's P-A-S-T-E-R. Um, and... LinkedIn, just to make it even more confusing, is pastor dash <laughs> Oh, wow. Wow. Slash that's okay. LLC. We have back. Uh, that's why we have the show notes. No yeah. one, ever, you know, don't be alarmed, anyone. We have the links in the description yeah. here. So every, we're all good. No worries. Uh, well, as hard as that, thanks, Chris. Really appreciate the opportunity. Always great to chat with you. Um, project we're working on, as Howard mentioned, we've got a uh, a strip center in Mendota Heights, and we're working on kind of a larger scale redevelopment of that shopping center. Somewhat similar to some of the things that we did at Texatonka that we'd like to bring to that neighborhood. So um, you can kind of, yeah, look, look out for us in that, in that area. And then um, as Howard said, find us on social media, uh, I think we all aspire to be a little more active on social media, but you can certainly find us there and LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you again for your time. It's been a, been a pleasure. Howard and Mike, uh, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. Great to be with you. Mm -hmm.